0: A quick note before we get started, this episode is part of a series of shows we recorded on the floor of the Phoenix Convention Center during the Association of Corporate Council's 2019 annual meeting. I wanted to point that out in case you're curious about the background noises. I also wanted to thank the ACC for helping make these episodes possible. Now, on with the show. Welcome, everyone, to the In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Enricus, a commercial litigator with Womble Bond Dickinson. With me, as always, is my producer, Brian Ewing. And sitting down with us today are Carl Peterson, who's general counsel for the Mid-Atlantic Business Unit of Titan America, and also Stephanie Bortnick with the So Falcon. Uh, She's the associate general counsel there. Carl, Stephanie, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today.
1: Thank you. Thanks Good. for having us.
0: Let me say at the outset, and I know we talked about this beforehand. You're not representing your companies in the podcast. These statements uh, that you share are just your own individual views. And we're going to talk some about social media professional development. But I understand you both work with large entities, and you're not intending your remarks here to be the final word with respect to those companies. So, of course. as much you. as
2: I would like to impress my opinion on everybody that I work <laughs> with, uh, they, they've told me to stop doing that in public. So, here right,
0: we right. You know, and. We, we're not going to insist that by listening to them here, you know, that they they must do it. I'll educate um, them in other ways. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm glad you were able to join us because this is something that we haven't really hit on in the podcast directly, which is kind of the way social media is influencing things today. And I know, Carl, you had written an article a few years ago for the ACC docket that was titled Finding and Cultivating Your Digital Footprint. And... Brian found that when we were getting ready for the podcast. And I said, Carl clearly knows what he's talking about here. So, you know, get, get that man on the on the show. But I do think it's, I, I noted it because it both talks about the risks. And I think as lawyers, we're always focused on risks of, oh my God, don't say that. And don't violate this bar rule. And don't get sideways with the marketing folks. But you also talk about the power of some of the social media in terms of building relationships, building professional connections. And I think sometimes in all the worry, that piece gets lost. So, uh,
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, as I was writing the article, I started to think about it in terms of past versus future, right? So if I sit down, I look at my LinkedIn profile, for example, I'm thinking about what if a potential employer finds this. In uh, LinkedIn, I found is a little bit of a different animal, of course, because everybody looks at that as the professional. So then they say, if I have a potential employer, they're going to go find my LinkedIn. So how can I make that help me in the future and when they're doing that sometimes they forget about what else do I have out there that's existed in the past and this is a problem that has actually compounded itself as the years have gone by right? so when I wrote that article back in in 2016 I believe it was Facebook was a thing Twitter was a thing Uh, things like Snapchat were starting to get up and, and get up and get going and Instagram and things like that but at that point, there was actually an entire generation of previous social media, right? You had your MySpace and your Friendster. Right. And everybody kind of forgot about <laughs> Right, people about forget those.
0: about those. Right. That right. Are,
2: but know. one of my favorite quotes that kind of echoed through my head the whole time I was working on that article is from uh, the social network, the movie about Facebook, sit where uh, at, at the very beginning, Mark Zuckerberg gets into his argument with his girlfriend, and she says, Mark, the internet is written in ink. And, huh. and I think that's just such a great yeah. statement, because anything you put out there, it's out there, and it can be found, and now it just seems like every single day you hear something new about somebody who, well, he had tweets from when he was 17 years old, and now that he's a you know, starting pitcher in Major League right. Baseball, they're coming back to haunt him. So you're seeing how it can be harmful, but at the same time, I'm a, a young professional, you'll be 38 years old in a month, and the thing that I'm always thinking about is, okay, what can I be doing right now to make myself more marketable? I love my job, it's, it's fantastic, but more marketable in terms of, things like this podcast right you found me because this article was out there on the internet sure because it existed so what can I be doing in that aspect to put things out there to make myself a more well-rounded lawyer and expand my network beyond the people that I work with every day beyond the people I interact with in Norfolk and Virginia Beach but you know to folks who are living and working in Houston or Denver or wherever they might be so I think there are some real benefits out there I think there are some real risks but um, I think that we as lawyers are Uniquely, as you said, considering the, the negative aspects of it. And nobody's really harnessing the, the, the positives of it at the same time. Not nobody. But.
3: It's it's one of those things where it's like, if this thing is so powerful, it can ruin people's lives. Then, if it's harnessed for good, there must be a heck of a lot of benefit to it as well. Like, you know, Right? Like, that's... <laughs> You know, it's, it's 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 atomic energy versus the atomic bomb kind of thing.
2: It, it is, and the unfortunate reality is, right, that what gets the most attention of the of that dichotomy, right. what's getting all the all the network attention, right, the bomb, what's getting all the the, the attention in the workplace, it's the negatives. It, but it, it's true. I mean, I find that even in my position, if we're conducting an interview or if we're thinking about bringing somebody in to speak to our, our folks as a consultant, the first thing I'm doing, and I mention it in the articles, throwing some quotation marks around their name, and yep. running a Google search and Google and it. What's Absolutely. And usually the first two or three are, you know, whatever the professional website might be. Maybe there's a Facebook, maybe there's a Twitter, um, whatever it could be. but. Then beyond that, then you find out they won an internet contest. You find out that, you know, there's this, they're active with the Chamber of Commerce. And most of it's positive. Right. But every once in a while, something kicks back and you're a little suspicious about what you find. And, yeah, and, right. and it makes you ask some questions. So yeah. A the, mugshot somewhere. Uh, right. And criminal, you know. The biggest piece of this uh, that I think is important is to get people thinking about it. Because there's a lot out there written about folks that they have no ideas out there. Everybody thinks that, okay, I don't maintain social media presence. I don't have a Facebook profile. I don't have a Twitter feed. Therefore, I don't have to worry about this. And the reality is you do because your friends, your family, your colleagues, they have social networks. Um, Your local newspaper has a web page. Your local chamber of commerce has a web page. And they maintain membership. They maintain pictures, things like that. Maybe not bad, but it's good to know about. Absolutely. Stephanie, are you a a social
0: media user? What what do you do yourself? And then let's talk about some of your experience with ups and downsides of it.
1: I'm, I'm a more cautious user I'll say uh, than probably Carl is um, I'm, uh, I'm mostly LinkedIn Facebook but Facebook intended for more of a family environment I know my mom and my dad are out there so yeah, that's right. <laughs> so um, uh, you know my use is, is limited I'm mindful I had um, a family member who actually in her youth broadcast much more of her personal life than she really uh, uh. should have and she had some repercussions from that so you know just step. Noting the generational differences, and the kids have such easy access to this, the, and um, and they don't appreciate how permanent and destructive it could be. Also, you know, as a associate general counsel at a company, we're always concerned about the employment angles. Sure. So you know, there are now restrictions on what you can look at and when, and how deep you can go. You know, what connections can you have with your peer group? So that's always a, a common concern within our organization. As a senior member of your organization, you're not supposed to invite um, friends to Facebook and and maybe not even to LinkedIn, you know. So, but if a subordinate maybe invites you, is that okay? Where do you draw the line? And are you aware of? how you're being perceived within the workplace based on your personal life. So, you know, our human resources department, they they are very modest. Uh, one of our human resource members doesn't even have a Facebook profile. They're concerned about potential issues of if a, an employee is terminated, is there a security risk? Can uh-huh. they come and find me as, an, you know, right. as a senior member of the organization? So, you know, it's out there and it's complex um, how we look at that. And, and then we've also had people who have picked up on uh, blogs and started having fights with one another over the posts and things like potential employee bullying. Mm. You know, so it... and,
2: and one thing that I thought about while I was working on the article was you talk about how many employers take this stance of we're not interested in being involved with social media, and the reality is you're involved with social media as an employer. Your employees are out there, and they can they can do one of two things for you. They can be good stewards of the company. They can be out there, you know, is chewing all you talk, going through talking about all of the great things about your company, or if they're unhappy, they can be out there talking about that too. And as an employer, you need to be really really careful that you're not saying hey you can't post on social media about work because. Because it's been said, you know, that social media is the new water cooler. That's where the employees are going to gather, and they might start talking about working conditions. They might start talking about wages. And at that point, that's protected speech that the employer cannot chill, cannot quash. So taking a firm line of, well, we don't have a social media policy. We discourage any social media use at the office. You need to be real careful about how you word that because otherwise you could end up on the opposite side of that issue where you're chilling free speech.
1: And the same is true with unionization efforts Um, and, and use of company email. There are certain restrictions where you're not supposed to use obviously your email for personal purposes, but that's an accepted class of communication depending Mm. on where you're located. So even that email, if we're doing discovery or researching issues, that's something to be aware of that you're not allowed to really look at that component of content.
0: Are there any HR concerns for employers doing what Carl described about just Googling You know every applicant and seeing what they are you're not allowed
1: you're not allowed at a certain point right if you find out somebody has a profile out there and therefore they're not offered the job why is it that they weren't offered the job is it because the person you know you could see their age you could see their uh, gender i got you so the concern
0: is you will learn impermissible factors in the review that could potentially do it right now what if you say well i saw them you know chugging beer or smoking pot or whatever, you know, behavior and that's not consistent with our, what we're looking for in the image of our employees. Image, I, mean, I think
1: it's a question of protected class at that, right? Is it, you right. know, is it a, a failure to hire due to a certain legal reason uh, that's protected or is it for some other reason? Hmm. Um, so I think it's I think it's a real, uh, and, and you can't unsee it, right? I mean, once you've sure. now Googled that person and you've found their Facebook page that you didn't have the security settings and you observe this. You know, how can you now document that you did not hire that person or consider that person because of what you've seen? Uh,
2: but then kind of taking that back to the opposite side, right? As the potential employee, as the applicant, you, you want to make sure you don't have those pictures out there of you chugging beer, of you doing these things. I mean, of course... I'm particularly aware of this as a lawyer, but even as a law student, when Facebook had really just kind of got up and going, I graduated in 08, so Facebook really blew up in like the mid-2000s, you know, once it grew out to other institutions. And we would have Halloween party, for example. We had a Halloween party, we had maybe 50 or 60 of my classmates there. And there were pictures that people were taking at the Halloween party of everybody having a good time. And we all talked about it the next day. We were like, hey, let's just not put those up on Facebook. I don't really see any value add there. Because the idea being you could potentially put them up for a day, let everybody see them, and then delete them. But back to my earlier point, the Internet is written in ink. There's there's ways to get that information, even once you think it's deleted. Everything has been cached. Everything exists out there. I mean, I I touched on it in the article, the Wayback Machine, this wonderful thing that can show you um, old versions of websites that existed, you know, back to like 2002, I think is when they really got started. And the the number of gigabytes of data, I looked at it today and saw (laughs) that the Wayback Machine has cached 1 million gigabytes of data it was a petrobyte, I think. I'm, oh my I'm over my skis right now right. in terms of technical uh, right. uh, nomenclature, but it, it's an awful we, lot we of information. We call that a ton or a lot. Yeah, of yeah. <laughs> it, 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 was, it was a half, yeah. half a billion websites were out there. Wow. So I, I was able
0: to go up. Right. I, and it's captured because it, that's, you know, it crawls those sites and captures and saves mm-hmm. them. Right. So there's no way to go back and
2: right. use your eraser on those. Right. right. And, and the, the tough part is, is I, and I think we've seen this with a lot of these, I'll call them uh, you know, scandals that you've seen with Twitter and, and things like that, trying to explain context even. Um, I forget the guy's name he's a pitcher for uh, Milwaukee during the All-Star game, the man's having an incredible season, goes out and starts pitching in the All-Star game and the internet which doesn't sleep, starts going through his old tweets and starts pulling tweets out from when he was 17, 16 years old mm-hmm. and they're they're inappropriate they're not what you'd want an All-Star pitcher representing right. your organization to be saying out there and afterwards he, he gave a plausible uh, uh, response which said I was 17 years old. I was stupid. I was a kid. And every time this happens, it happened with one of the guys in the NFL draft. You hear, I was a stupid kid. And I get that. I was a stupid kid once, too. There are people people that are out there that will tell you I'm a stupid kid now. (laughs) But um, you you can't go back and simply undo that once it's out there. So at some point, you have to kind of figure out kids being kids is one thing. But having the ability and the access to things like Twitter to put these messages out there and, and for them to be catalogued forever
1: how that's they, tough. Yeah.
2: I mean, I, I was talking to Brian about it earlier. I think there's an entire generation of kids that someday is going to be... We saw what happened with uh, Justice Kavanaugh, right? Yes. And I'll say without even taking a political stance on that, trying to explain the context of yearbook comments. You oh, think right. that's difficult. Right. The, there's an, an entire the, generation of kids who's going to have to explain the context of YouTube comments and Twitter feeds. And, and it's astounding to me. And I just don't know how it's going to work. We talked earlier about the potential that 15, 20 years from now, when you're swearing in a new Supreme Court justice and somebody asks like, okay, right. so on the last Star Wars trailer, you <laughs> said the following as a comment to the YouTube video. <laughs> I don't know if you're going to have to change the standard or uh. how it's all going to work. It's 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 really troubling to look down the road at how this all plays out.
1: Well, and even the concept of you think you're having a temporary conversation through Snapchat. Meanwhile, people are taking screenshots or even the appropriate use of it's just in a uh, one of the seminars, and uh, the person was talking about how the executives were using WhatsApp to have a conversation outside of the email usage within the office, is that it wasn't even the content of what's discussed, but it's the fact that certain people are having this discussion in places that they think are potentially not permanent. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it's just simply not the reality. Well, and
3: uh, Carl, what you just brought up, uh, brought up something interesting, I think, which is this notion that there is this generation. And we say young people, but as you said, you're a professional now. You're part of that first wave of of folks. But when we were talking earlier, we we talked, I think, very smartly about the fact that there has to be a certain amount of assumption that there is going to be a certain cultural shift, too. Yes. that, That because this is so pervasive, because this kind of behavior has always existed, but now it is broadcast, that when uh, enough of those Gen Z, uh, millennial 2.0 kids become professionals, become adults, that just culturally there's going to be this, yeah, of course it's out there. It's uh, everybody's, you know, my dentist also has, but whatever. What I think is interesting about that, though, beyond just the cultural acceptance, comes with some legal dynamics to it as well, which leads me to something that uh, Stephanie you mentioned. Uh, because Saul is a French company, there is um, the uh, right to be right forgotten. To be forgotten. I, I, I'm sure right. a lot of our listeners kind of are aware of that, but you mind talking a little bit about it no. and, and would you agree that, that maybe that's kind of indicative of that cultural shift in, and in litigation or excuse me legislation and the law reflecting that cultural right, shift. Right.
1: Well, I think what we we've all realized is technology outpaces the law and the regulations of it. Immensely, sure. And I think every day it grows a little bit more. And um, and with the advent of GDPR and CCPA and, you know, all the other 50 states that are coming up with their version of the same thing, embedded in the uh, GDPR regulation is the concept of the right to be forgotten. And um, I think embedded in all of the data privacy uh, regulations is the concept that there has to be an ability to delete at some point when it's no longer useful, when it's out of um, normal usage, and who actually owns the data. I think we're also starting to see a shift that, you know, just because an organization collected data at one point, does it truly mean that they own it? And I think what we're starting to see through these acts is not only delete my information, but in fact, I own it. And even the concept of, you know, can you sell your own data at some point? Like, right. is, is the market model going to shift completely um, over time where people recognize, no, that's mine. You've, you've effectively stolen it. So I think we're just starting to see with the right to be forgotten and some of these other data privacy acts that the, this is the beginning of that shift.
2: Well, and that's also even reflected on the Wayback Machine. I I was looking into it this morning. It had been a while since I'd gone back and looked at it. Um, That's actually been ruled illegal in Europe. So the Wayback Machine, they've recognized that the information that's stored in the Wayback Machine does in fact belong to the individual and not to the company, and, and they can't freely crawl those websites anymore. So there are certain jurisdictions in which they've had to curtail what they're doing with it. But to the point about the cultural shift, I think it's going to be very interesting to see because I think we're kind of on the bleeding edge of this still right now, right? Where where the idea of old tweets and, and old uh, digital footprint being discovered, uh, people out there scouring the Internet to try to find dirt on somebody. I think what you're seeing is this generation that's coming of age and, and those things are being discovered by a generation that never necessarily had to deal with that. So you're judging this up-and-coming generation through the lens of a generation that didn't have that out there. Mm. So I think as as we continue to age through, as the current generation ages up and then another generation comes in, perhaps you'll see a little bit of a different lens applied to say, okay, I had that when I was a kid, or maybe there is a different legislative uh, framework or something. But I, I do think that the the bias with which it is viewed will change over time. I, I hope. My goodness.
3: I, I really do. I think that's the with the GDPR and with the right to be forgotten and... Some of these other measures, I, I do think that we are starting to see that, the, again, the cultural shift, the, this understanding that, yeah, it was captured, it was whatever, okay. and so and we've seen it throughout history in law, right, that you see a cultural shift, and sometimes it works, you know, it, not necessarily chicken or egg, it's sometimes the one reflects the other and the other, you know, or vice right. versa, but I do think that that's what more than likely is going to happen, right, because it is just so pervasive that it's it's almost ridiculous to kind of think we're still going to have someone running for office in 2040 and people are going to be like, well, we saw that they had on ZipZorp or whatever the, <laughs> the new thing yeah. is that, that they, that, you know, whatever. When they were 12, it's like, well, yeah, they were 12 and everybody has one of those skeletons in their closet. The
2: interesting angle I see on all this, too, is... I think there's a shift in the way people are viewing their own personal information. And I'm not even just talking about pictures and profiles and things like that, but I'm talking about shopping patterns with shopping cards. Mm. And, hey, can you give me your zip code? Can you give me your phone number when you go to check out? You're hearing an awful lot more uh, where people are saying, no, I'm not interested in sharing my information. Uh, You see Zuckerberg in front of Congress answering questions about what they're doing with information.
3: But studies have shown the opposite. Studies have shown that younger people, when they're surveyed, say... Eh, yeah it's fine I, I i they can collect all the data they want of me and it's they're gonna get it anyway, whatever and that I think is Fascinating.
2: It, it, it is. Um, I, I've always thought that the framework under which people provide information freely is interesting because, for instance, my mother, who will never give anybody her zip code or her telephone number at the at the shopping line, has a massive Facebook profile that's rife with, <laughs> right. uh, you know, it, it's it's pictures of puppies and it's recipes and it's things like right. that, and that's awesome. You know, great, good for her. But what she doesn't necessarily realize is every time she posts from that, it, it tracks her location. So it says posted right. from, you know, Ann Arbor, Michigan, right. and then two weeks later, it'll post from if she's on vacation. And what I think is interesting about that is you think to some of the practical realities of that, right? If somebody really wanted to track her and be like, well, yeah. I was thinking about breaking into a house and now she just posted here and I know she's in Maryland or she's in Ooh. Virginia. So yeah, look, her, her house is probably empty. That, sure, that kind of thing, the practical it, stuff right. that you're just giving up.
3: Well, and, and that's the, we hear that example used a lot, which right. I think is interesting. That idea that you are giving up this information and that, again, that cultural shift of, yeah. well, they're going to have it anyway. You know, yeah. it's, there they is. may
1: prefer it even because, as the artificial intelligence starts to uh, be applied more correctly and uh, in really understanding what your preferences might be, it can cater data to you. So, you know, just learning about TikTok um, as an organization using yep. artificial intelligence, and so they're searching so much more than you can possibly search on your own to find content. They're, they're doing it for you and providing it for you. So, if the content is, if that's a service you want, then great. There's, right. there's a place for it. You know, alternatively, if you're an organization trying to claw that information back, that's a completely different issue. Now, I, I work for a, a company who makes a product that lasts at least 50 years and, and we're required to keep data for the life of an aircraft plus 30 years according to regulation. So now I have 80 years earth of information. How do you begin to take that information and draw out personal information? I mean, that's it's, it's right. a, an undertaking that is very challenging, particularly as we start to move more online You know, how is it that we're going to start processing? Are people going to become numbers as we're starting to do our software uh, planning and um, coding? How are, are we treating vendors? How are we treating our customers? Can you really extract their names? And even worse than that... You know, if, if you have an obligation to, from a regulatory organization to know your customer, um, know who your ultimate beneficial yeah. owner is, to prove that you haven't sold an aircraft to oh, a, right. a person. That's right. So you, you <laughs> save that data as part of the file to prove that you've complied. Right. So you do learn people who go out of their way to hide their identity in special uh, vehicles for for the intent yeah. of disclosing and now even with the aircraft industry they're doing double blind trust to make sure that places like FlightAware can't find out what business owners are meeting at what airport etc mm. so it's a very difficult challenge I think depending on what your intent is as an organization. That's
3: fascinating
2: and the other piece of that too I think is, is at the same time you have a lot of people who are trying to shield their identity. We, we talked just a little bit before we got started about okay so if you're trying to figure out what your digital footprint is and you don't have any information out there, is that a bad thing? And I think the answer is yes, Uh, not only from a short-term resume standpoint, I want people to be able to know about me and learn about what my areas of expertise are, but I think you just touched on another one, which is, that if you don't have a profile out there, if you're, if you're starting your own business, you don't have a profile as an expert in whatever field you're starting that business in, you're automatically going to get questions about how come that profile doesn't exist. So you're going to be seen right. as being suspicious because that information isn't out there. So I think that
3: is another that's, generational that's, that's, thing. Yeah. Because I will tell you, like when <laughs> I go to look for people, uh, especially professionals... Mm-hmm. and I don't find you on LinkedIn, I'm like... <laughs>
0: yep, yep. <laughs> are they that's, a real lawyer?
3: I, right? I, are, are they really, really at that firm? Yeah. Like, it, it's, it's like either you're really doing a, a poor job of promoting yourself or that's really an odd decision. Mm-hmm. And I... I And I do think that's a generational... uh... It
2: it absolutely is. I actually just used a mover a few months ago and I got just a word of mouth referral from a guy I work with. Went back to my desk and I looked them up and they didn't exist. I I found Mm. a generic Facebook created profile that had a business phone number on it. No pictures, no reviews, no anything. Uh, So I called the number and the lady said, oh yeah, we're bonded and gave me all the information over the phone. Went ahead and booked it. The guy showed up and he was fantastic. He and his team had been doing this. He'd been in the business for 50 years and he's forgotten more about the moving business today than I'll ever know. But uh, I told him, I said, I just wish that there had been more information out there because I would have been a lot more comfortable with this because you guys killed it today. I would refer you to everybody I know. And he said, you know, we've talked about doing that, but he's teetering on the edge of retirement. He said, for me, it's just not worth the investment at this time. Because mm. he said, when I retire, the business is going to close. I'm not going to pass my name along to it. But oh. you could tell that it had not really even registered that this is a need to get right, business out there. Business. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's a tricky balance to strike.
3: Well, and that... Uh, brings up a a question um, that I had for both of you which is we've talked about kind of some of the negatives but now we're just kind of talking about why it's a positive I would love to hear from both of you as professionals as attorneys how your digital footprint has been beneficial and and if you have tried to capitalize on it in a positive way
1: I would say for me, um, I'll, I'll notice that more people will reach out depending on what's posted. Um, I've met good friends, you know, Carl and I both belong to uh, the leadership team for the small law department, which is how we've met. um, And we've written an article, right. We wrote wrote an article um, on uh, compliance and I had a local um, attorney reach out and say, Hey, I read your article. I really appreciate it. Let's have lunch, you know? And, and so then you start to build networks um, and, you can meet more people and discuss Interests that are similar and help one another and even maybe a, a non-public forum, right? So, right. oh, you're a person who knows about this. Let's, uh, you know, let's have lunch and talk about uh, challenges. And it, uh, it started a, a nice friendship where we were able to really collaborate on a lot of other topics and, and help one another with certain challenging issues that you may not want to discuss in a public forum. So, yeah, you know, just having uh, contacts reach out, I think, has been really helpful for me.
2: Yeah, and I got involved with the docket. Um, I've always been interested in writing, so I reached out to the docket and said, okay, what do we have to do here? And I, I did a couple of articles that showed up in the print version, but then they said, hey, we've got an idea. You could have a regular law department management column. So every three or four weeks or so, I was, I was churning out an online column. Didn't have to wait for the publication. Oh, wow. And it could go from my desk to being published within 24 hours. So <laughs> I, I put a ton of articles out there. Uh, real quick hits on things like email etiquette and how to manage workflow in a small law department, things like that which, A, kind of scratched my itch for wanting to write, but B, I was getting cards from folks who had come across the article or emails from folks saying, hey, I really appreciated what you did out there on this. I At the ACC meeting the last couple of years, I've run into people who recognize my name from the article. So it's helped me kind of grow my own, what I'll call personal brand, professional brand yeah. now, in a way that I, I came from law firm practice. And when I was in the firm, it, a lot of it was kind of dictated, right? It was, yeah. it was your profile with the firm will be X, Y, and Z, because I was a junior associate. And at that point, I wasn't out rain making out the marketing client. department
3: at of course. <laughs> no, no,
2: definitely not definitely not just want to be um, clear about that <laughs> the words of Carl Peterson do not necessarily reflect yeah. okay yeah. Um, but, but it, it was just a lot different because when I went in house I had a lot more autonomy not in, only in terms of work but in terms of you know, go forth and flourish, go forth and be productive. So I've really kind of taken that at face value and, and pushed myself to be involved with ACC, to do things with the docket and to get my name out there as a professional because I know that if I don't do it, nobody's gonna. Right, so, um, right, and right. In one of the most fruitful examples of, of what I've gleaned from all this, I'm sitting here at a lovely table with, with you three talking about the merits of something that I had out there on the internet. I mean, it's kind of come sure. full circle, so. Yeah,
0: yeah, no, that makes sense, right? And it does, and it was out there for a while. So yeah. even
2: though you wrote it a while ago, it, it's it was but
0: it's it still there. Because
2: when I saw the email come in and say, hey, I saw this article and I was really interested in it, and it was attached to the PDF, I double-clicked and I said, I have no idea which one this is going to be. Uh, but I was pleased that it was this one because it was the longer form one. I could have talked about email for probably an hour as well because I right. have some <laughs> bones to pick with people that I email with. But, but I really like this, uh, this topic as well. It's great.
0: I want to, You mentioned the Wayback Machine a couple of times. Yeah. Some of our listeners may not know what it is or how to use it. Can you give us just a little bit of practical tips? If, if I say, oh, really, I want to go find what was online
2: three years ago. How do you actually do it? Yeah, sure. Um, it, I, I believe it's just waybackmachine.org, but, or you can Google Wayback Machine. And what it is, is it's a service that, the, the technical term that you used earlier, is it crawls the internet. And it takes snapshots of web pages that have existed, and it does it on a rolling basis, a little bit like they do with Google Maps, right? You see the cars out there just taking pictures of streets and updating and all that. It does that with websites. It, it catalogs and curates a catalog of websites all over the internet so you can go to the Wayback Machine, type in any URL. So you could look up titanamerica.com or wombledickinson.com or whatever the, the, the actual yeah. website is. I apologize. Uh, but the actual website, and it will show you it, what days it hit that website from the year 2002 onward. Yeah. So I think this is an incredible thing, not only to see kind of the, the evolution of, of different websites over time, but as a business owner, you could go back and you could do a visual history of here's here's the... Uh, footprint our company has had since we first started. So what improvements have we made, where have we where have we kind of lost. The interesting thing is, um, there are some limitations to it, right? So it catalogs the URL. Um, it doesn't do a great job with pictures. So if you're going back to look for like a, a picture of a partner who existed at the law firm 20 years ago, you might, might have some problems with that. And as websites get a little bit more complex, if they're more than just a real basic code, if they've got Flash installed and things, it, it, it gets kind of prickly with that. But uh, you can go back and you can see, so if you had a, a personal blog or a website for your own business and you were concerned about, hey, you know, we had, we had that one person who worked with us for a long time who went on to do nefarious things or to you know, become infamous for some crime or something like that, you could go out there and figure out, okay, how did we hold that person out when they were with the company? And that's an extreme uh, example, and I get right. that. But um, it's a real useful tool to be able to go back and see, as I said, the internet's written in ink. It peels the page back and shows you what the ink gotcha. used to be, as opposed to what it exists as today.
0: And do you need to know the
2: URL? I mean, can you do the equivalent of a Google, like a term search? Um, thing you, for you'd, that? you'd probably or have to, to have to marry together two searches, right? You could go to the right. Google and you could figure out what the URL is, and just copy and paste the the URL into the Wayback gotcha. Machine. I will say, and this is not intended as a slight at the good folks who keep the Wayback Machine up and going. It, it's not incredibly user friendly, and I think they've started to put caps on how much you can search, so you can't just spend all day searching for every iteration of these 15 websites that you want to take a look at. I think it's five per day, something like that, that it allows you to go back and do. It's a massive undertaking, right? So uh, I think they must do that to to control their own traffic and make sure that they're not being hammered by everybody out there looking at these things. I I do know that it was something that we used, uh, for example, in law school a little bit more often to try to find out some things about if we were interviewing with partners and we wanted to to learn more (laughs) about what their early career was like or something like that. Um, it, It was really popular then, and I think it's fallen out of favor just a little bit. If nothing else, um, people don't know about it very much, yeah, um, because I, I, I got a couple of notes about this article that they weren't familiar with the Wayback Machine at all, and it sounds like a, a made-up thing, but yeah. it, it's, a good, it's a good way to poke around at the internet, and even for your first time, to just go on and see if there's anything out there you're interested in, but just to have it in the back of your mind is something that's out there and available, too.
3: Yeah. It's a reference to the Wayback Machine from the uh, 1960s cartoon, Mr. Peabody and Sherman. I don't know if you remember that one. I don't. Uh, it was one of the... Um, it's one of the Hanna-Barbera cartoons, is not it? Uh, I don't think it was Hanna-Barbera, actually. I think it might have been Sid and Marty Croft, but I, I may be wrong. But, um, yeah, it was uh, a little boy and a genius dog, and they would travel back in time and educate children on whatever. Uh, but it's uh, adorable and obviously stuck in my in my <laughs> really? brain. Yeah.
0: Good. Well, and I know we were talking about some of the positive uses of social media. I wanted to end with just talking a little bit about company use. I, most of our discussion's been on individual sure. uh, use of social media. As lawyers that work at companies, do you have thoughts on company use of social media as a company account? And is that handled through marketing? Does What role do you play as in-house counsel? That's that other balance. You want to start with that, Stephanie?
1: Sure. Um, Well, we value social media, obviously, as a company, our marketing department, both here in the U.S. and in France, um, keep a very close tab on what's happening. But we obviously use it as a marketing tool. Uh, We'll set up elaborate demonstrations of, you know, aircraft in flight and um, Mm. other ways to showcase something that people couldn't really observe firsthand themselves. Right. Um, so you could see multiple models all in sequence, um, huh. flying. Um, some artistic spins on uh, how the company is viewed and how they want us to be perceived by the public. And um, can I interrupt? Do they? Use, sure. Is that
0: a Facebook or do they use? Or is um, that? Our their own web page. Um, okay, your own web. But
1: they do have you know Twitter, Facebook, um, any all, all of them. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> but we have dedicated people that do track it throughout the day. Um, So it's constantly under supervision. As soon as um, anything negative appears on any of them, it's promptly brought to the legal team. Okay. Um, You know, for discussion, I think I was mentioning one matter that was a potential employee bullying scenario. That's something that we need our teams to be aware of to act quickly, to make sure we're handling that information appropriately. Then, of course, then there's the proactive piece of it, you know, to make sure that the content is something that is appropriate. It's not copyright infringement somewhere else, any number of issues that would be a factor for something in print, you know. So um, I would say that's our involvement. Uh,
2: We, at my company, we we have a Twitter, we have Facebook, we have, you know, the the full cadre of the social media. and, And we're still kind of wrapping our arms around how to use that in a beneficial way. I think YouTube offers us some interesting things because as a cement manufacturer, that manufacturing process I find really interesting. Uh Uh, And I think that we could showcase some of that in ways that ordinary people aren't quite aware of to watch the manufacturing process for Portland Cement to see how it's put into ready-mix concrete, that sort of thing. Uh, to Stephanie's point, we also use it as, and I think that this this is something that some companies have done a fantastic job of, is using social media as a customer uh, service, uh, You know, I- interacting with their customers, responding to customer complaints, mm. issues, questions, et cetera, because uh, I tend to get pretty frustrated if I have to pick up the phone and call somebody and wait on hold for you know, 25 minutes to get to get customer service. The airlines are a great example of this. Uh, and most of them have done a fantastic job of leveraging social media. So if I know that if I pick up the phone and call someone, it's going to take me 25 minutes to get somebody who may or may not answer my problem. But if I go on Twitter and I tweet at them, say, hey, I'm having an issue. Can you guys help me out? Most often, I get a responsive tweet back within 5, 10 minutes. I've seen it with United. I've seen it with Southwest. I've seen it with Verizon. I've never tried that. It's, no. And I part of me thinks that The real reason you're getting the prompt attention on social media is because it's public, right? Right. Because somebody could go out there and say, what kind of consumer complaints does this particular airline have? And if they see all these tweets of people asking for help and not being helped, I think it's it's a real PR problem. And that's one thing that I've tried to impress on our folks is if we get a complaint, if we get somebody popping on Facebook and saying, hey, I was behind your truck and it tossed a rock and broke my windshield and I want to talk to somebody about how unhappy I am, you have to respond to it because it's out there and it's, it's in the public domain. Everybody else can see it. And you know, as, as the admin, you theoretically have the power to delete it. That doesn't solve the problem. It just makes it worse. But it, it gives <laughs> you an opportunity to interact with your customers in a way that I don't think really existed 15, 20 years ago. Um, but there is another negative to the company social media, which is, I'll say it's both a positive and a negative. You have employees out there who are proud to work for your company, right? They're proud to go to work every day and they're really excited about what they're working on. So what are they gonna do? They're gonna get on Facebook and they're gonna start talking about it. And they're gonna start posting pictures of it. And they'll do the same on LinkedIn. And we work in an industry where all the time we're doing work for customers that really don't want their yeah, information they don't want published, on Facebook right? Saying, so I've oh, had to have. oh, here's the new jail that we're building. Exactly, whatever, right? exactly. So I've had to have several conversations with our folks about just be real careful because a lot of the contracts we sign have NDA provisions, or confidentiality provisions in them. They have things that say no publication without our consent. So if you're out there on the job site, you're super proud of yourself, you snap a selfie and there's a sign in the background or some other uh-huh. identifying factor, right. um, you're probably going to get right you're trying to do something
0: positive but it turned out yeah
2: so so it goes back to educating the the, the folks so that way again you can't, as an employer, turn your head away and say, no, we're not gonna have a social media policy because the social media is going to come to right. you. You just no, need to figure out how to deal with it.
1: It is, and uh, you know our social media policy is relatively new, and we had a number of circumstances popping up that prompted us to be sure that uh, we put a policy in place, and in one instance it is. It's a, it's not the negative, it's a positive. Your employees love your company, they love your product, they love what they're doing. In one case, an employee had taken our logo and uh, morphed it into the Olympic colors. Uh, ah. and, um, so we had this morphed double copyright <laughs> I- issue, and it wasn't posted internally. It was posted on an individual's Facebook page and out there, and another employee observed it. And so you know, uh, it, we had a polite conversation about just what, it, what does that mean? What can you do? What can't you do? Um, do you
3: make an effort? Because obviously, as a PR person, I'm like, uh, I don't want don't want that person to now go. Okay, well, I'll never post about the company mm-hmm. again because clearly, like, that's phenomenal, positive. Right. Like, you know, the last the more door, of that we can do. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of right? So, uh, how do you, when you have those conversations, how do you walk that line so that they don't feel like, well, I didn't mean. I won't ever post anything again because I don't want to get in trouble. How do you like go? Like, no, no, no. I please. We. I, I would love that you. You love your work mm-hmm. so much. Just
2: yeah, I, I I've said that exact same phrase. That's usually how I start that conversation. Is look, I, I'm really happy that you're proud to work here. I love this company too. It's a great place to work. Um, you just have to realize we're all working within constraints, right? Because I know the minute I pick up the phone and I call somebody in the field and they see the legal department on the other end, they're automatically a little reticent to even pick up the phone. But what I try to do is pay them a great deal of deference, right? Like you're out there doing your job. I'm here doing mine. I understand you You love working for the company, and that's great. We don't want you to stop posting, but all I would say is if you have any questions about what you're going to post, give me a call. I'll look at the picture. I'll help you walk through it, and I'll tell you why it's okay, why it's not okay, because at the end of the day, we, we want you out there professing on behalf of the company. We just need to be sure that we're doing so in a way that represents the company in a way that, that doesn't expose us and doesn't expose you
3: as an individual. I, I'll tell you, as a PR person, like to hear someone's posting on Facebook how much they like their job or how they're right. proud of their, like, work. Uh, that's, you know, the, right, you want com- that. the, the compared to how often it's the the opposite. Yeah, right. Right. It's like, you don't want to, like, make anyone feel right. like they, they shouldn't be doing that because right. it is so valuable. Well, yeah. So, so valuable.
1: Our marketing team is pretty good about sending links to uh, all the employees as well about something interesting that the company's done, if they've done, you know, a a new model, a new test flight, interesting new pictures, they'll, they'll give the employees, hey, if you want to share this link, here it is, Um, and, and we'll allow it has all the appropriate copyright and other protected uh, language on it. So it's helpful, too. So that's an easy one for the employees who really are proud to just take that link and put it right on there.
3: As a PR tip, I would say, you know, if, if you want to be proactive, work with your uh, marketing and uh, communications departments to come up with, uh, so for instance, like the site where you're building something your folks are excited about, work with them to um, work with the communications department, marketing department to produce some social media posts that incorporate the, the folks who are there doing the work and make it available to them so that they can post it and and use it, or uh, have them send us your stuff and we'll post it through our system. That way, you can filter out you know what works and what doesn't. But to work with them because it is that's a that's a tremendous you know. Uh, so you know product
1: placement too. I mean, we've we've been approached uh, by numerous people. I don't know. I think your company has as well. But you noted know, to to um, use film on a private jet or to. Oh, right. And and so we'll I, appear in.
2: I, I actually remember <laughs> so, I shot you that note a couple weeks ago because I was watching a show that I won't name. But I was watching a show <laughs> and I absolutely saw their facility at Teterboro (laughs) Teterboro Uh, airport and I was like have you seen this (laughs) I hope you have seen this (laughs) but yeah it's it's, it's out there and it can be it can be a very helpful thing it can be great press for the company
1: if used appropriately. Yes. So, I mean, that, and then there's some limitations, too, to be aware of. So if you're approached by an organization like that for filming, you know, where where is your product going to be placed? What is the context of right. it? Right, what kind of film is this going to exactly, be? Exactly, yes. exactly. So it's, uh, you know, it is something you'd be concerned about, um, but it lives on, obviously.
2: <laughs> it, it, but... It- and we allow, we do a lot of the filming agreements as well. And, and uh, we were talking earlier about, uh, I'm a bit of a comic book junkie. And we've actually had the good fortune to have a couple of those films and TV shows come out and film at a couple of our sites. And it's great. But one of our hard and fast rules is we don't have any company logos, any signage, anything. So it's our site, yes. But you, you'd never know it because most of the time they transform it into, you know, some some right. town somewhere else in the world. But. They
3: transform? Is that like <laughs> uh,
2: Did you see yeah. my eyebrows? Yeah, the listeners yeah, yeah. couldn't see me cocking right. my eyebrows. <laughs> and
0: then it all gets destroyed anyway, so right. it doesn't really matter <laughs> what right. it looked you, like. Originally you try to, to keep ladder. people
2: at bay.
0: <laughs>
2: it would optimally be the <laughs> prime location. <of> <laughs> so we've proven I'm a nerd. That's fantastic. That's good. That's good. Then we've accomplished our objective <laughs> exactly. here on the podcast. If you didn't know that within five minutes of starting that conversation,
0: then I did a bad job. I know we're about out of time, but I wanted to see if any of you had any final thoughts or tips or advice for your other
2: peers out there as they grapple with these issues. Carl, I'll start with you. Um, uh, the one thing I would say that, that I don't think we've touched on yet is if you're worried about what's out there on your Facebook, your Twitter, your uh, LinkedIn, LinkedIn less so because it's intended to be a, a professional, uh, you know, holding yourself out as a professional, one of the options you can always do is change your name. And I know it can be tough, you know, if, if your Aunt Sally logs in and doesn't see that her nephew's there and posting under his real name, it can be confusing. But a lot of my friends, for example, have military um, uh, spouses or things like that, and they're just not comfortable holding themselves out there first name, last name. So right. they'll change it to, to first name, middle, or just first name and, and uh, you know, just a, an initial. Like an initial. Yeah, yeah. So, so that way it doesn't necessarily link directly back to them. Now, obviously, if there are photos, you can kind of figure it out, but it at least throws somebody off the trail they're trying to to hunt up your background, your past a little bit. So that's always an option. Um, In terms of using it as a positive, I mean, I think routinely you need to kind of make a cadence of every six months, every 12 months. Google yourself. Just take a few minutes and see what is out there. You can set up alerts, too, like yep. I've done uh, with yeah, Google, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, where yep. I get it every All time there's... Now,
0: there is this Mark Enriquez soccer player that I keep getting alerts on. That I'm like, <laughs> yeah. You know, For a while, my
2: name's so unusual, I thought
0: there'd be nothing out there, but now I, you yeah. know, fine. I, I didn't win that soccer game, but...
2: I've I, I realized <laughs> I have a golfer and a Scottish folk singer out there, and the former general manager and president of the Kansas City Chiefs is out there walking around with my name. Wow, the there nerve. you go. But, um, well, if it, you it, decide
0: it, to go into uh, football, uh, that could be, you know, it could be. It could be useful. Um, I,
2: I don't know the man, but I will tell you he w- he was uh, run out of Kansas City uh, in a relatively uh, oh, no. negative fashion. So I, I try to distance myself. But um, <laughs> but what I will say is it, it's it's a good tool out there to to see what's out there, both positive, both negative, and if you've got something in your past that's completely accurate, that's out there figure out how to best take that on. Um, and I think that that's an important thing, too, It's just because you have something in your past that, that you might not want an employer to know, you, you might not be able to bury it. You might not be able to hide it forever, but you can know about it and control the message as you yeah. go forward in no, your that's professional a good career. Point. So, Great. Thanks, yeah. Stephanie.
1: And I would say, you know, on a personal and a professional level, um, you know, I have two different views. My, my brother's in the military and has... Uh, risen through the ranks and, um, you know, for him uh, to be promoted required an extensive background search, which includes family members. Because Mm. if, you know, you have maybe if I were in financial distress or had other issues, that could have um, impacted his career mobility, which is kind of an interesting thing. So to uh, be, be aware that the impacts are not just for you, it's for others as well. And then professionally, I'd say, you know, We're starting to see this ripple and this change, you know, as we start to approach legal issues. There is a flattening of the world in a certain way. I think it's smart for us to start considering, you know, can we take one view globally on this type of issue? If so, how can you do it to make it an easier and less expensive management issue? Mm. Um, So, you know, of course, we've seen it all with bribery acts or... um, uh, human trafficking. All the different countries have all different regulations. So it's an issue that that's it, there in different shades of gray. So if we can all just accept what the primary basis is and then perform to a higher level that hopefully addresses all the issues, then you don't have to have the 50 state exceptions. So I hope that's where we can go to as an organization. Um, but I think it'll take some time to kind of figure out what that consistent message is going to be.
2: And for the love of God, if you have a Twitter account out there, You're going to be applying for a job or you're going to maybe be, I don't know, pitching in the all-star game or something. Go out there and see what tweets still exist out there and clean them up. You can delete (laughs) tweets. You can delete Facebook posts. You can delete all of those things. Um, Some of this stuff I just find kind of confounding as to how you could have these things out there and I know we've all been young and dumb once, but at least take that. At, at, right, at,
0: when you're old and smart you can go back, <laughs> go back and at <laughs> least can, yeah, do exactly. what you can,
2: subject to the limits of Wayback exactly, Machine, exactly. exactly And try to clean right. stuff. One thing up. I've not done and I'll have to do when we uh when we leave here is I haven't experimented too much with the Wayback Machine and Twitter. I don't know how those two interact. I know with the, the login, I think, will probably pose some limitations to allow you to go back and look at someone's Twitter account as oh, right. it existed six months ago versus if they went back and deleted some things. Of course, you'd be subject to people taking screenshots and whatever, but that's unlikely. But, you know, we're all one all-star game away from being famous, I guess. <laughs> nice. I keep telling my mom that anyhow. So. That's great. Well, thank you so much for joining
0: us. Um, I appreciate you guys participating in the podcast today. So, Stephanie, Carl, this is very educational, I think a very timely topic, and I appreciate you writing about it. And you know, people can certainly go find that article. I think we're going to include in the show notes a link to that article uh, if people want to find it. And I'll remind our listeners, if you want to find prior episodes of the In-House Roundhouse, you can do so at WombleBlondDickinson.com, or you can do it at iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. So if you've got comments on this episode or suggestions for future topics, you can email me or send me something in LinkedIn or Twitter, uh, which I'm looking at. So I appreciate that. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening today, and we will see you at the next station. In-House Roundhouse is a production of Womble Bond Dickinson. Brian Ewing is our producer and Robert Daughtry is our audio engineer.